Good morning. Today we'll be reading from Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their women, their words sounded to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen laying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Thank you, Noel. And good morning again. Uh, if you need a chair, I just say feel free to use the chairs, extra chairs on the side. Uh, it's lovely to see all of you here this morning. I invite you now to bow your heads and pray with me as we ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father in heaven, we come to Holy Scripture this morning. And Father, we pray that, that our hearts might be soft, that our minds might be open to receive your word. Father, it is not the testimony of a man, but it is the testimony of God that makes all the difference. And so, Father, would you be speaking to us through your spirit, the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome uh, again this Easter morning. As I said at the outset, we're, we're not here simply to try to keep the memory of Jesus up, keep the memory of Jesus alive for us. You know, if we talk about it long enough, if we think about it hard enough, maybe we'll actually believe he is risen. Uh, we're here to celebrate that he's alive. But I suppose that all of us might admit that the resurrection is quite a difficult thing to comprehend, a difficult thing to understand or to get your mind around. After all, as we just heard, it was hard for Jesus' most devoted followers to comprehend. It was hard for his disciples, those hand-picked, appointed leaders, to understand. And in fact, it was hard for the man that Luke was writing to, Theophilus, to understand. He opens his report, and I'll, I'll ask Mariah to put the, the slide up from Luke chapter 1. This is how Luke begins his gospel. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. 
just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Luke says, this is a story that people are trying to explain. This is a story that calls for some interpretation. With this in mind, since, myself, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may be certain of the things that you've been taught. This whole gospel begins by Luke trying to say to the person he's writing for, I'm trying to help you know the certainty of these things. The resurrection's not easy to get your head around. I came across an article this week in The Conversation. The tagline of The Conversation, it's a, it's a, it's a, is it a news site? It's a, it's a news site, but their tagline is academic rigor with journalistic flair. <laughs> and so the idea is that they take the spin out of the media and, and they try to just sort of present things on an academic level. Uh, they present research from scholars. And this is the headline, it says, supernatural beliefs have featured in every society throughout history. New research helps explain why. So the idea is that these scholars have got together and they've surveyed religions old and new, across continents, across cultures, they've surveyed these religions and they've noticed a few trends. They asked the question in the article, and the, the authors are Joshua Jackson and Brock Bastain. Uh, one is in North Carolina, one's in Melbourne. And they asked the question, why is religion so prevalent? One reason is that it's a powerful tool for explanation. So they look at human history, look at society, and they say, if you want to understand why religion is so common, why, why it's so prevalent, it's because it's a tool. It's a tool that people pick up when they try to explain things that they can't understand. And they go on to cite a few different examples, along with some cumulative research and as they come to their conclusion, and this is not exhaustive, but their argument is that the, the religion exists because it gives a supernatural explanation for phenomena that people don't understand, natural phenomena that people don't understand. And so, for instance, in some cultures, when lightning came, they said, oh, that's the, that's the thunder god sort of flashing his, his sword. The problem is Christianity is different because whereas Christianity, oops, let's go back, whereas Christianity seeks to, seeks to explain things that are supernatural. If as the article pu puts forward, religions exist to explain natural phenomena that occur over and over but they don't understand, what do we do when we come to the Christian faith? The problem with this theory and why it doesn't fit Christianity is, we've only seen someone rise from the dead once. We're starting not with a natural phenomena. We're not starting with a common occurrence like stars in the sky or trees or earthquakes. We're, we're not starting with something that's common. We're starting with something that's uncommon. 
We're starting with something that purports to be supernatural, a resurrection. And so while Christianity may have all sorts of social implications for how you treat your neighbor and how you treat your spouse and what it looks like to, to live in this world today, while there's all sorts of social and moral implications to Christianity, the basis of Christianity is not those social and moral implications. The basis of Christianity is a reported supernatural event. A man rising from the dead. The discovery of an empty tomb. Well, if you've been tracking with us, we saw as Jesus went to the cross that Luke is writing this gospel in such a way as to show that Jesus' condemnation was actually his coronation. And that as Jesus journeyed to the cross, he was actually in a procession to God's throne. And then we come to the empty tomb. And the question I want to raise for us this morning is, what do we do with things we don't understand? Or how do we face things that we don't understand? Because you're going to read these verses this morning, and you're, look, you're going to be watching people who see things that they do not understand. And so bound up in this report is this mystery. What on earth is going on? What do we do with the empty tomb? How do we face things we don't understand? Mariah, I might get you to jump past this, thanks. So faith is often referred to as something that is blind, and these are some habits that people have when it comes to blind faith. Things people do. One way they do it is they just sort of have a selfish ambivalence to other people's pain. And so really, until, until their own comfort is challenged, they actually don't even bother to integrate with with what's going on. They really don't care to understand or know how some of these mysteries are resolved as long as they're comfortable. Another way people approach a habit of blind faith is to have a casual dismissal of alternatives. This, this works fine for me, so I'm just actually going to, I'm not even going to really engage with an alternative. I'm not going to actually spend time thinking and reasoning through what another explanation might be. I'm just going to dismiss it casually. Another one is to have a prejudicial bias to what is often either the present or to the majority. And, and people in this kind of blind faith, they just sort of yield to group think. Well, if, if everyone else thinks it, well, then it must be true. Or if it's the current trend right now, well, that's, that's the way things are. And for a lot of history, people just reflect the culture and the time that they're in. Another habit of blind faith is to have this kind of intellectual duplicity where you actually live in a suspended state of unbelief and really anything, and, and with one group, you, you, you wear one hat and you jump into another group and you wear another hat. We've probably heard or known people who show an unquestioning allegiance to tradition. That's another example of blind faith. Again, it's not the basis of the fact of the matter, it's the basis on what was handed to me. This is the way it's always been done. And another example of blind faith is people who are contented to be ignorant. Similar to restating the first one. 
But the big idea of this passage is that the discovery of the empty tomb is the fact, and I use that word carefully, is the fact that prompts our hearts to believe in Jesus. And so the gospel is not a story invented to explain natural events that we observe. But the gospel is a historical account delivered that explains a supernatural event for which there is no better explanation. It's an important difference. This supernatural event, Jesus rising from the dead, it points to a spiritual reality that supersedes and encompasses our reality. And living in such a reality requires faith. John Stott, the great New Testament scholar, would say, people will die for a conviction, but they don't die for a concoction. <laughs> in other words, I'll die for something I believe in deeply, but I'm not going to die for something I know that I made up. It's this discovery of the empty tomb that prompts our hearts to faith. So Luke is going to center these events around the, around the empty tomb. And ironically, the, the tomb, which is sort of the, the feature of it, it becomes really irrelevant by the end, mostly irrelevant. Uh, and the women here are the crucial link between Jesus' burial and his resurrection. And Luke's very careful to make them eyewitnesses. So if you're someone who sort of likes a bit of an outline. You have the women who make a non-discovery discovery. You have the angels who make a declaration that was sort of already declared, a bit of a re-declaration. And then you have the disciples who, by and large, offer a dismissal of their report, maybe with the exception of Peter. In terms of our message this morning, uh, Luke's going to unpack the reality of the resurrection through the eyes of these women. And we're going to just look at three things. What they found what they forgot, and what they faced. What the women found, what they forgot, and what they faced. What do they find? Luke 24 opens with the unexplainable absence of Jesus' body, contrary to all expectation. Follow with me as we read. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. I don't know if you've lost a loved one or you lost someone dear to you recently, you'll know that grief is an immense process. And because grief is such an immense and difficult process for us as human beings, we have all sorts of rights and, and all sorts of markers around grief. I was driving by the cemetery in Castle, Castlebrook and just, just marveling at this huge parcel of land, prime real estate, dedicated to us honoring our dead. And so as these women got up in the morning before dawn, they had to resume a process that had been interrupted by the Sabbath. You see, less than a week, less than a week before, things looked very different, but then Jesus, bloody, bleeding, dying on the cross, they lay him in the tomb, they watch where he's laid, but they don't have time to continue in honoring Jesus. So they wake up early in the morning, they gather all their things. And the women are shown here as going out to the tomb. This is one way we face things we don't understand. 
We know the disciples didn't understand what was going on. They, they turned tail and ran. But here, the women, in this instance, they come with their spices. They're ready. They're ready to add honor and dignity to Jesus. That's why we do that. We recognize that there is something special about a human life. One of the worst things you can do, and it's a, it's a violation of human rights, is to, is to put people in a mass grave. To not mark their uniqueness, to not mark their distinction. And so the women get up early in the morning with spices. They're there to bring tribute and honor to Jesus. To honor his remembrance. But they show up and they find, Luke records, two things. <laughs> well, they found the stone rolled away, but they didn't find the body of Jesus. It's this ironic tension. They show up at the tomb and they, and they go to see the body of the Lord Jesus and he's not there. In other words, the women found that their devotion and grief was rendered useless by the reality of new life. I just want to tell you this morning, if, you're, if your spiritual life is oriented around, around simply honoring Jesus, if you're just so moved by his example and so grateful for his teaching, and you're just going to devote yourself because you think he was a good man, and, and you want to show respect for the beauty of his life, but you somehow miss the fact that he's risen, then you've missed the entire point of the gospel. Imagine all these women... These women showed up, all their spices. Immediately they show up at the tomb. They got to be asking themselves, what are these for? What are we doing? All that preparation suddenly rendered useless by the reality of new life. It's not that their reason was bad. It was very good. They loved Jesus. They wanted to honor him, but he's risen Their devotion and grief is rendered useless by the reality of a new life. Well, what did they forget? <laughs> they forgot that they would not find the living one among the dead. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. If you've been with us on the journey through Luke, the last time we saw two people gleaming in clothes like lightning was on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was Moses and Elijah. They were talking with Jesus. He was talking with them about his exodus, his departure his departure in Jerusalem. And here there's two people, two men. We realize later they're angels. They're there. The women fall down in fright. They bow their faces to the ground. The men say to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? <laughs> I love how the angels are like five steps ahead all the time. <laughs> right? What? <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, what's all this for? What's with the spices? What's with the... Whoa, whoa, whoa. We know you're looking for Jesus, but why are you looking for him here? Great question. He's not here. He's risen, they say. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. You see, the women had forgot that Jesus brought the kingdom of God to redeem this fallen world. 
Jesus wasn't a sideshow. He wasn't just trying to become popular as his brothers thought. He wasn't just there to inspire us by being a victim or a martyr. Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God. He came to overthrow this fallen world, a world where death reigns, a world where sin enslaves, a world where suffering is unavoidable, a world where there are tears and crying and mourning and pain. Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God to redeem that. Well, they forgot that. And you can forgive them because they just watched Jesus suffer. But notice they remembered his words. They remembered his words. So what happens next? Well, we see in verses 9 to 12, they had to face others with his message. We see in verses 9 to 12, they face the persistent, dismissive unbelief of the leaders in their community. Verse 9, when, the, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11. Notice Judas isn't there anymore. And to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. Verse 11, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. <laughs> Even the disciples don't believe it. You have a really hard time reckoning with the discovery of an empty tomb. Because the theories of alternative explanations are very difficult. If you take the mass hallucination theory, which some have suggested. Well, the disciples, they all just had this sort of dreamlike visitation of Jesus, and they mistook that for him actually being risen. I mean, skip the fact that you have a simultaneous hallucination to 500 people. Skip the fact that it occurs over a period of years to different people at different times. If you want to call the resurrection appearances a hallucination, they don't work like this. They had no expectation that he was alive. In fact, when they're told it, they say, this is hogwash. This, this, this is not a group <laughs> that is conditioned to make up a story. If you say, well, look, the, the, the religious leaders, the Romans, the authorities of the day, they just, you know, they knew where Jesus' body was and they just moved it. Well, why wouldn't they just produce it? Why wouldn't they just stop all of this and just say, look, you want to know where he is? We moved him over there. He's in that mass burial, that gravesite. And if we think that somehow later down the track, many, many years, these disciples say, you know, that Jesus was a special guy. Let's, let's come up with the story how he's really alive again. It's going to cost us our lives, absolutely. We're going to lose our property, our possessions, our loved ones. We're going to have to relocate. We're going to have to move. But you know what? Won't that be a fun, practical joke? Practical jokes can be funny. But I don't know many people that line up to die for a prank. 
So the women come back and their words are nonsense. They face this dismissive unbelief. Peter, however, gets up and he runs to the tomb and he bends over and he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away wondering to himself what has happened. I mean, why is the linen there? If, if, if it's just about moving the body, you'd think you'd take the linen. What the women did was they faced the decision to hope in faith while still seeking understanding. So we come back to the question. Is faith always blind? Is faith always blind? Is the nature of faith to just just be totally blind? Some habits of faith that seeks understanding. A faith that seeks understanding is faithful in devotion despite what the appearances may seem. The women going to the tomb Faith has courageous curiosity around anomalies or things that we don't understand. Faith has a considered reflection on the past. It has a selfless honesty within the community. It has a persistent integrity in our convictions. And so the report comes to us just like the report came to the disciples. The women who saw where they put Jesus went back on the third day, and he wasn't there. Where was he? Where was he? Either this is all some mass charade, But even if you go that route, how do we discount the evidence? The explanation given by the scriptures is that the discovery of an empty tomb is meant to prompt our hearts to believe in Jesus. And so if Jesus is risen, the implications are vast. You see, the... the, The resurrection is often rejected not because the evidence is bad, but because the implications of what that evidence means are so striking and so heavy. Look at some of these implications. If Jesus has risen, there is a life after our death. That's amazing. To think that there is something beyond this process of generation and degeneration. This process of slowly watching a soul grind to the heart, to, to a halt. To, there's something that beyond the fragility of life. If Jesus is risen, there is a power that is above our nature. There is something greater than the things that we can do. That we can discover, that we can put into action. If Jesus is risen, that means there is a hope for forgiveness. That that power that is greater than us and to which we are accountable, that there is somehow a restoration possible. It also means that there is a purpose behind suffering. There's a a greater plan. There's There's a greater overarching narrative. If Jesus is risen, the future is brighter than our present. This is really important. 
I heard Tim Keller say in a sermon recently, he said, how many of us are living our lives based on what our parents have said about our future? More than what Jesus says about our future. Or what our colleagues say about our future. Or what we say about our future. What we believe and expect is quite powerful. But here, if the tomb is empty and Jesus is risen, then our future is glorious and bright. It also means there's a glory greater than ourselves. There's something beyond the, the fame and acclaim that we just pass to one another. It means there's a joy beyond our expectation and a king over our souls. So what does it look like to step into faith? Maybe you're someone who's like on the fence, you feel a bit skeptical. What does it look like to step into faith? Number one, interrogate your beliefs. I don't care if you're Christian, non-Christian, know why you believe what you believe. Don't punt on that decision. I see more people dismiss Christianity in blind faith, and the ironic thing is they say because they think Christianity is blind faith. But if you ask them, they've never actually interrogated why they believe what they believe. And what it often boils down to is we think that we are the best interpreter and the best arbiter of truth. And so at the end of the day, if it seems true to me, then it is true. And if it doesn't seem true to me, then it can't be true. That's where we've arrived as a society. So the first step is interrogate your beliefs. Secondly, investigate the teachings of Jesus. You have the fact of the resurrection, but, but look, look at what he actually says. Because he gives the interpretation of these events. We're not just people who walk around saying, wow, there's something really crazy happened 2,000 years ago. Isn't that amazing? Let's sing songs about it. Right? That's not what we do. Thirdly, involve others in the conversation. We're so used to privatizing our beliefs. Oh, I can't possibly talk. I can't talk about what I believe. You know, there's two things you don't talk about. Religion and politics. If we talk about religion and politics, that's not, that's not appropriate. Why not? I mean, if we never talk, if we never engage one another, you're even more confined to your own head. And then what happens is, as we involve others in the conversation, you can do it through books, you can do it through, through community spaces like this, friends, colleagues, but make sure you invite God into that conversation. Invite God to respond with prayer. Have you ever asked God? Have you ever started a conversation with God? I mean, it seems pretty, it seems pretty silly to rule out that somebody exists if you've never actually engaged them. But for those of us who do believe, the gospel is that the way of King Jesus is the way of new life. And so the resurrection is just the beginning. What does it look like to step into new life? We talked about stepping into faith, but what does it look like to step into new life? Number one, recognize Jesus as your king. 
You cannot share in the resurrection life that Jesus brings if you deny who he is and you deny his lordship and his authority. The Bible says that God has set a day when he will judge all of humanity by one man. It's this man, Jesus Christ. We need to recognize his authority. The second thing you need to do is repent of your dead works. To repent means to turn around. It means to actually front up and face God. It means to stop going in the same paths you go over and over and over again. And here, I hope you hear the angel's question, why do you seek the living among the dead? How many of us crave something more out of life? How many of us crave meaning and purpose and dignity and love and worth and, and security? We crave it so much. And yet, where do we go looking for it? We go looking for it in the catacombs of social media. We go looking for it in the graveyards of our corporations and businesses. We go rummaging around the flowers of different dating relationships, and, 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 and we, just, we just keep looking for life among the dead. Repent of your dead works. Turn around. I mean, at some point, at some point, you won't have new life unless you say, I'm going to stop. And that's what repentance is. I'm going to stop and I'm going to turn and I'm going to face God. Thirdly, receive the Holy Spirit. You will not know new life if you do not have the Holy Spirit. Someone might say, how do I, ha how do I get the Holy Spirit? I got good news for you. There's a one-word answer to that. Ask. Ask. Now you might think, oh, to get the Holy Spirit, I got to do a certain, I got I to repeat this phrase, I got to mumble, you know, I got to mumble this three times, I got to go walk over here, I got to sit in this place, in this corner, and I got to think this thought and hold this stick and do this. You know, no, ask. Ask and you can have the Holy Spirit. And if you receive the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that is alive in Jesus will be alive in you. And let me tell you how new life begins. It works from the inside out. You are reborn in your spirit before you will be reborn in your body. The spiritual always precedes the physical. Jesus didn't need to be reborn in his spirit. He already had the Holy Spirit of God. The only thing that suffered decay was his flesh, his body, his being. And he, coming out of the grave, is the first fruits of what we will look like. You won't know new life if you don't have the Spirit of God. Ask for the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to lead you in the way of truth. He's going to be your counselor. He's going to be an advocate for you. He's going to comfort you. He's going to remind you of the things that Jesus said. He's going to enable you and empower you with the grace of God. You need the favor of God. If you try to live a new life in your own strength, you're not going to do it. Fourthly, Step into new life. Rejoice in the hope of salvation. There is no reason. I mean, I could think of maybe a couple. But, but predominantly, predominantly, our future is so much brighter than our present, it's almost not even worth complaining. Our, 
our future is so much more glorious than what we're doing right now. It, it's not worth obsessing about. I'm not saying that the pain's not real. I'm not saying that, that there's no space for lament. There, there is space for all those things. There's, no, there's space for grief. But as the church, let's be a play people of joy. Finally, step into your life. Release the grace that you've been given. God's been cooking some of you for a long time. Right? You, you, you're like, you've been in the incubator for a really, really, really long time. And, 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 and the, the grace of God has just been saturating you, your mind and your heart. And, and you, you know, you, you weep at the drop of the hat. You just need to think about Jesus for two minutes and your heart is filled with joy and overflowing. But you got, you're so locked down. Can I just encourage you today? There's enough grace you don't have to hoard it. You don't have to stockpile it. There is a fountain of living water that will come into your life. It will be a spring that never runs dry. And and, and times of refreshing will come upon your soul. And so as, as... as you pour yourself out, as you, as you unlock the vault of your life, as you rip the, the canvas off, if you pull the facade down and you say, well, I got all these cracks and I got, I got all this mess and this ugliness in there, that's okay because the light of Christ is bright enough to shine through the cracks. Nobody's going to even be looking at the cracks. They're going to be looking at the glory, glorious light of Jesus. So have you been incubating? If you, you've been, if you got that bushel over your light, please let the grace out. Let the forgiveness out. Let the hope out. Let the love out. Because we're not here performing for one another. We're not here trying to make Jesus alive by how well we do our Christianity. He is alive. He has risen. He loves you and he redeems you. No one who comes to him will be cast out. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you know him, please, 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 let that grace flow out. Release what's been given to you. You will, God will never owe you. He will always give more, more than you could ever imagine. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the new resurrected life. Thank you that we are reborn now in the spirit even as we anticipate being reborn in the body. We thank you for Christ, the first fruits. Christ, our righteousness. Thank you that he ever lives to intercede for us. And so, Lord, we come before you now and we say, help us. 
bless us. Lord, we're tired. We're tired of scavenging for life among the catacombs. Lord, may we walk with the living one. In his name we pray, amen. I sat in church for so many years, and, uh, and I thought that if I listened long enough, if I heard enough, then it would be real. But it wasn't until I actually addressed the Lord, until I actually called on Him, that I was made new. We're not, as Christians, called to just believe in a set of texts. We're called to believe in a person. And so would you receive this benediction? May the light of Christ, our risen Savior, shine on your hearts. May you find him a faithful friend, a never-failing counselor, an all-sufficient Savior, and a redeeming Lord. May the Son of God rise in your hearts this week, even as he rose thousands of years ago. And may the blood of Christ with which he is interceding for you today, may that be your cleansing. May that be your confidence in a world that is lost and dying. Would you bring this news to those around you, to the glory and praise of God the Father, and in the power of his spirit, amen.